Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello, and welcome again to the Got a Minute podcast. I'm Larson Hicks, and I'm joined by Rich Lusk. How are you doing today, sir? Yeah, great to be with you, Larson. Likewise, uh, I'm glad you've got a minute. Uh, we are talking uh, again about uh, Gilder's, George Gilder's new book, uh, not new book, his book from the 70s, um, Men in Marriage. And uh, it kind of stirred up some uh, excitement and discussion on the interwebs as, uh, as things about this topic tend to do uh, in our circles. And, uh, and so last week we went through and, and covered a big chunk, most of the first section, the book's divided into three sections. Uh, the first is the facts of life. The second is the breakdown of monogamy. And the third is the economy of eros, uh, eros, however you pronounce that. And, um, and so we kind of stopped at uh, chapter three, really, which is, the, which is before uh, the very end of, ch- of the first part of the book. So we thought we'd maybe dive back into it. But one of the things that happens on God a Minute podcast uh, almost every episode is we end the recording and then we have another 30-minute conversation about what we just talked about and end up uh, saying some of the best things <laughs> of the whole of sure. the whole conversation after we've turned off the camera. Um, and so we wanted to try to correct that by this time, uh, including some of the stuff that, that you brought up after we talked through uh, uh, the first section. Uh, do you remember what that was about? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one thing we talked about is, uh, you know, some of the criticisms that I've seen of, of Gilder's book recently. And I, and I do wonder sometimes whether or not some of these critics have, have read it is yeah. the way that, uh, that he sets up the intersexual dynamics and especially how he basically says women civilize men, that, that, that women right. are sexually superior and in some way, even civilizationally superior. And therefore, uh, it's, it, it, it falls to the woman to domesticate and, and tame the man, if you will. Right. And I, there's a lot of problems with that. One thing that I think that we should, um, that maybe we can get into even later on today, is how marriage is transformative for both men and women. It's not as though women are perfect as they are, men need transforming, and so the woman does that. Both right. men and women, you know, men and women in 1 Corinthians 11 are clearly mutually dependent upon one another. And, and women need to undergo transformation and maturation just as much as the man does. And they right. can uh, play that role in one another's lives. Uh, nevertheless, there is something compliment, complementarian about that. There's something, uh, something the man does for the woman that she doesn't do for him and vice versa. Right. But one thing that I would say, if you wanted to correct Gilder on this, I think this is the easiest way to do it. And I don't think that Gilder would object to this very much. Um, this is this is right at the beginning of chapter one, so it's it's page five. If you got the '90s version, I don't know what page yeah. it is. If you got the more recent version, but let me read to you this paragraph as he wrote it, and then I want to fix it. Okay, so this is about fixing Gilder. So okay. he said this third paragraph in chapter one. He says, "In creating civilization, women transform male lust into into love, channel male wander lust into jobs, homes, and families." Link men to specific children, rear children into citizens, change hunters into fathers, divert male will to power into a drive to create. Women conceive the future that men tend to flee. They feed the children that men ignore. Okay, now there's a lot of things there that I think you could, um, 
you know, that you could pick at. But the first part of it, let, let me let me substitute the word marriage for women and see how yeah. differently it reads. In creating civilization, marriage transforms male lust into love. Marriage channels male wanderlust into jobs, homes, and families. Marriage links men to specific children, and so on. Okay, that I think actually fixes it. it, it, it we shouldn't be attributing yeah. these things just to women, but really it's the institution of marriage itself that um, you could say pressures men, forms men, shapes men in this particular direction. Marriage gives an, a, a man an opportunity to channel his masculine energy in a productive way. I would actually say the same is true of, uh, for the woman and her female energy, her feminine energy. Uh, marriage gives her an opportunity to, ch to channel that energy in, in a very constructive way, which otherwise might not happen. Uh, when Gilder was writing, there was sort of this view that, uh, and, and he talks about this, single men are the big problem, single women are not. Okay, single women do just fine. That women can do just fine without marriage, but men become a big problem, and that's because single men, you know, unattached men, men without family responsibilities, uh, do most of the violent criminal activity in a culture, and that kind of thing. And, and, and he's right about that. Single men often are a problem that has to be dealt with. The problem is not that they're single per se. Uh, the problem is that they don't have a, a, a mission. They don't have a purpose. And certainly uh, a man who is gifted with singleness, like say the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, who's gifted with celibacy, who's not distracted by uh, sexual desire all the time, uh, could 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 find a mission and a purpose and therefore satisfaction and, and something constructive to do with this life apart from marriage. That, that is a possibility. But I think now in 2023, we can say that women who are unattached, women who don't have a masculine influence in, in their lives, women who... Um, who, 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 do, who, who basically reject marriage and all that comes with it, uh, actually end up being uh, a burden to society as well in all kinds of ways. So one thing that we need to take away, I think, is that marriage is incredibly important. That if you want civilization, you have to have the bulk of your young people interested in marriage, aspiring to marriage, wanting to have families of their own, all of that. And if you don't have that, then that means your civilization is going to die. And the men will destroy it in one way and the women in another, but it will be destroyed. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm afraid that's what we're starting to see happen all around us. I don't know that it's too late. I wouldn't say it's too late to reverse the decline. Uh, but uh, we have record low marriage rates and record low birth rates. And what does that tell you? You talk to a lot of young people today, they're just not interested in marriage. And this is not just men, okay? In Gilder's day, uh, it would have been primarily the men saying, I'm not interested in marriage, and women wondering, why can't I get my boyfriend to, to commit, to propose? Yeah. Uh, now, not so much. Now I think you're seeing it on, uh, you know, on both sides, men and women somewhat disgusted with each other in our culture, frustrated with each other, uh, not seeing the value in marriage, very cynical about marriage. And, and these, are, these are all things where I think when the church thinks about how can we minister to young people, this is something the church has got to be focusing on, is preparing women for what mature womanhood looks like, men for what mature adult man, manhood looks like, and marriage right at the center of that, because marriage is where men and women come together and uh, help one, you know, and, and basically create something, you know, amazing, something incredible. It's really interesting to me that now you've got all of these movies coming out, and maybe the trend really started with Frozen, where, uh, you know, it's not about 
the sort of princess figure, you know, falling in love and getting married at the end. It's not about finding a man. It's about finding herself. It's not about yeah. finding a spouse. It's about, you know, finding her yep. herself, her own identity apart from that. And then, of course, you've got... Um, the, uh, the 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 Barbie movie that is really I mean, I've not seen it but uh, I've read several reviews of it and it, I mean they don't get married in the end so so Ken yeah. was created for Barbie and yet somehow which is kind of a reverse of what First Corinthians eleven says about the man and the woman but Barbie and Ken don't end up together and and yeah. so it's like they each have to find themselves and find their own identity and create a life apart from one another. And that's kind of, that's really a reflection of our, you could say, post-patriarchal, post-familial society. Uh, we have descended into expressive individualism where it's just about finding yourself. It's not about finding a spouse and it's not about building a life with somebody else. It's about building your own life for your own sake and just, you know, be- becoming whatever you want yourself to be independently. And that's a disaster because that's not how God designed us. God designed us for community, for mutuality. Uh, God designed us to live in close relationships. And of course, the closest relationship of all is the marriage relationship. And God designed men and women for one another for that purpose. And so when you see people rejecting that, you know something is horribly wrong and that a civilization is terribly sick. And I'm afraid that's what we're seeing around us. I guess the Snow White movie would be another example of this. I I know there's that one little clip that's floated around where uh, the actress, who I guess plays Snow White, says, yeah, this is not about her falling in love and being rescued by a prince. This is about her finding out how she can be a leader, (laughs) how she can become the next great girl boss kind of thing. But again, that's not really fulfilling and that's not really the life script that that scripture emphasizes for women. It's not that women can't do all kinds of wonderful things outside of marriage and family. But the main thing, the central thing is that she is going to be uh, a multiplier. She's going to be a helper to her husband and a nurturer to her children. And if she rejects that role, civilization dies. Just like if the man rejects his protector provider role, civilization dies. Yeah. Yep. No, that's, I mean... Coming back to the start of it, you know, uh, what you said about just kind of replacing the word women with marriage, I started to do that as I read the book, um, the second section of the book, and, and it works really, really well. I think it's a, and it's not that, um, I actually think that's what Gilder is intending, generally speaking. You know, I, I think he's he's pointing to men as, you know, as, well, um, let's see, unsocialized men, you know, men who are not, who haven't been sort of quote unquote tamed by marriage um, as the problem that every society has to deal with. What do you do with the young single men? And, uh, and so, and so really you're right. It it is marriage that is the solution. And as you see in this next section uh, where he starts really getting into, okay, let's look at this from the woman's perspective Uh, in chapter five, I believe um, it's the, it's the princess problem. Um, you just, it's, it's a, it is such a accurate depiction of what's going on in the world right now for young women and, uh, and, and, and the, um, the sad reality of sec- of sexual liberation is that the only real winners in sexual liberation, uh, are powerful males. Um, so all, all of the women who think they are advancing some great feminist cause are really doing nothing but making the world a more um, a more uh, g- giving men powerful men more options uh, and and, uh, and and making it harder and harder for for you know um, 
un, unpowerful men and women of of really all ages except for that you know kind of peak sexual attractiveness phase in a woman's life where she does have all kinds of options you know and that's why it's i mean i think that's why it's so appealing to young women is they're at the peak of their kind of sexual powers so to speak and so this message of liberation uh right as they're coming of age sounds like wow why wouldn't i pursue this yeah this sounds great but then you follow this out and you just run the tape forward in 20 years and now she's 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 not no longer at the peak of the of the sexual um hierarchy so to speak and uh and she finds herself in a situation where she doesn't have kids and uh the the man that she was pursuing the powerful man that she was pursuing who left his wife uh for her is now gonna leave her for the next young wife um and uh and so i thought that was all just super super helpful i think for women you know to young women especially to hear that message and see that story play out. I just don't think that's something that people are doing. Well, I actually preached on Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 yesterday, part of part one of a two part series in the end of Ecclesiastes. And and one thing I talked about is because, because Solomon, I think Solomon's book is, is, you know, Proverbs is mainly, I think we've talked about this before in a previous podcast, but Proverbs is mainly for, for, for young men. Um, I think Ecclesiastes is sort of, you know, wisdom for old men. But at the end of the book, he especially, he, he turns his attention back to youth. It's like, there's kind of this, you know, it's, it's, he's circling back around to what Proverbs was about. And so, and he's really talking to young people about old age in the last couple chapters. But, um, one thing that, uh, that I, that I think he emphasizes there is that, um, the, the trajectory of your life is so important. The trajectory that you are on from the early, you know, from your early days, because that's going to have a great deal to, to, uh, to say about the happiness and, and fulfillment that you find later in life. And I, I, I brought this out in the sermon, but Jordan Peterson makes the point that, you know, our whole society is basically designed for people under 40 because that, because everything we idolize, everything we tell people to aspire yeah. to only makes sense for people who are under 40. Uh, and so, you know, things like physical beauty and athletic accomplishments. And I mean, you, you can even say something like money. Okay. If, if you're, if, you know, if you say, well, money, you know, money is, you know, go after money. Well, okay, fine. But if you don't have family and you know, if you have wife and children in there, what are you going to do with your money? Uh, even your money really becomes meaningless with nobody to leave it to with no, you know, no cause beyond yourself to support it's it, again it is marriage that connects us to the future that gives us right. a legacy and so we right. talk about inheritance but but the other thing I, I brought out in the sermon is those young years of life are when you're at you know you're at your peak uh, strength and beauty yeah. so especially for young men you're at peak strength in those years women are at their their, their peak beauty what are you going to do with your maximum strength and beauty Obviously, outer strength and beauty give way to inner strength and beauty if you're becoming the kind of man and woman that you should be. And that's even more glorious, really. So there's that. But when you have, you know, for a young man, when he's got maximum strength and for a young woman, when she is at her prettiest, what are you going to do with those assets? And, and Gilder here is right. Uh, feminism has made women very short-sighted so that they think yeah. they can just play this dating game and kind of defer forever. 
And the reality is, you know, the red pill guys talk about a wall. And a lot of times they're really mean in how they talk about it. I think it was Don Lemon, I think, that got in trouble talking about, you know, women being past their prime. Okay, but, but I mean, the reality is, physically, that does happen. It, it's, it's it, you know, if you, uh, these surveys have been done. We don't have to make guesses. You can take men who are 15 years old, men who are 50 years old, men who are 90 years old, and you can give them a lineup of women to choose who's the most attractive, and they're gonna always choose the, say, 20 to 25-year-old woman. That's just how it is. Um, And now, obviously, there's a lot more to, uh, than physical attractiveness involved in marriage and all that, but that that is a key piece of it, is the physical attractiveness. God made women in such a way that they're attractive to men, that men would be drawn to them, and that, that, uh, that attraction is part of the glue that binds them together. So it is significant. And same with men. So many young men waste their strength, and they could be doing something productive and laying a foundation so right. that they would be able to provide and, 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 and care for a family in the years to come. They waste that strength on all kinds of foolish things. Um, right. They settle for fake sex and fake war, uh, you know, with video games and, and, and pornography. Instead of turning themselves into the kind of men who can actually be real protectors and who can actually uh, have a, uh, you know, a, a disciplined, chaste life where all their sexual energies are channeled towards the one woman who is their wife, you know, which is obviously where, where you're going to find the most satisfaction. Um, so so those, those things, I think, are really important to keep in mind. One of the things about feminism that, that, that you said, I think it's important to think about what feminism means for men and what it means for women. For men... Feminism is a civilization-wide test that men have failed. It's like feminism was men, you know, there's this whole psychological phenomenon that many people have pointed out how women will sometimes test men. And they just want to test men to see what they're made of, like a, a, uh, a, a girl who's interested in a guy and he's showing interest in her. Sometimes she will test him just to kind of see if he's got backbone. And it's not wrong for her to do that. She's kind of, you know, probing there to see what this guy's really like. He says, hey, we're going to go to this restaurant. She says, well, I'd really rather go over here and wants to know whether or not he actually is decisive and is confident and making a decision. Um, but uh, I would say I would say feminism has been a civilizational wide test that men have largely failed yeah. uh, because we have not stood up to women and said, no, you know, God has made us to be leaders we're going to lead, we're going to protect, we're going to provide. Instead of men have kind of said, well, okay, if that's what you want to do, whatever, whatever makes you happy kind of thing. Right. And that's what made the problem worse. Okay. Right. Um, so, I mean, think about, you know, the daughter growing up in a home where dad never um, says, hey, you know what? It's not a good idea for you to wear that. You may not understand why, uh, but it's not a good idea for you to wear that. You need to put some more clothes on. Or think about the man who basically thinks that he can make his wife happy by constantly giving her anything she wants. <clears throat> letting her call, call the shots. If a woman is married to a man who she doesn't, she doesn't think to tell her no or stand up to her. It makes her very insecure and anxious. It looks like you know she's the weaker vessel. He's supposed to be the stronger vessel, but it looks like he's pretty weak too. So yeah. that doesn't help things. So, so from a man's, you know, from 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 the male perspective, feminism has been a great test that men in the West have largely failed because we yeah. have failed to continue to be leaders and. Uh, heads of our families in any meaningful sense and that kind of thing. For yep. women, feminism has been the greatest self-own in history. Okay, um, it, it has completely backfired on women. And 
you know, part of that is women thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll become sexually liberated. We will uh, detach sex from marriage and children. We'll, quote unquote, have sex the way men do without emotional connection, just for pleasure, without having to have intimate relationships. We'll do hookup culture. And it's actually been disastrous for women. And even women who might get temporary enjoyment from, say, feeling empowered or feeling like there are a lot of men who are very attracted to them, that kind of thing. It all, it all runs out and dries up very, very quickly. A great illustration of what uh, Gilder is talking about in this chapter just came out in an article the last week. Um, I'll read you the headline and then little excerpts from the article. So this is from the New York Post. And oops, I just hit the video. I don't mean to do that. Uh, it's entitled Sex in the City Creator Candace Bushnell Dishes on Media, Modern Dating and Her Latest Project. Okay, I think this is the right article. Let me see. Um, because she really talks here about how she has a lot of regret over the choices she has made um, and how it's left her childless and lonely. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I didn't see it there, so it may, it may be something different, but I, I can pull it up here. Well, one. while you're looking for it, Rich, there, there, I saw another article this week, and I don't know if I mentioned it in last the last podcast or not, but I saw an article about a woman who was getting all this national traction I think I saw it in like Daily Mail or something, and it was uh, this this high-powered lawyer in California was offering a five thousand dollar bounty for anybody who could find her a man that would marry mm. her, um, and and it was just like and 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 you know there's a video and pictures of this lady and you're going this lady's not bad looking it's not like she's repulsive or has anything clearly you know. She's not like disfigured or something, you know, it's like, so, so why is this high powered, you know, f she's, she's closing in on 40, you know, ha why is this high powered, clearly very smart and attractive lady having to, having to offer a bounty, a $5,000 bounty, right, just to right. someone to introduce her to a man who would marry her. Yeah, it's kind of sad, really. Um, and yeah, all kinds of questions there. Okay, I, I actually found it. So I'm sorry okay. about that. If, if, no. if our listeners don't know, uh, Larson and I, we do this totally off the cuff. We do no <laughs> rehearsing. Uh, we talk about what we're going to do maybe for two minutes before we get started, and then it just rolls. So if it ever seems disjointed or, or like we're not totally prepared, uh, we don't have notes. I, I hear people doing podcasts talking about notes, and I'm like, notes? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so this, 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 so this is... Um, this is actually in the Daily Mail. Okay, I think this is the article I was looking for. Sex in the City writer Candace Bushnell, 60. Okay, so she's 60 years old now, admits she regrets choosing a career over having children as she is now truly alone. Mm -hmm. So now she is reaping. This is another thing I talked about in my sermon is that young people need to think of life in terms of reaping and sowing and what you reap right. in youth, you will, what you sow in youth, you will reap in old age. And really that's what's happened here. Uh, so she has, um, she has chosen career over family and really a life of sexual liberation over family. And now she's suffering the consequences of that. So um, the article says she taught a generation of women that they could, quote unquote, have it all. But Sex and the City creator Candace Bushnell, 60, has admitted she regrets choosing a career or having children as she's now truly alone. Uh, she says, um, when I was in my 30s, I didn't think about it. Uh, I got divorced when I was in my 50s. I started to see. Be so listen to this. She says, I... This is in her 50s. She says, I started to see the impact of not having children and of being truly alone. I do see that people with children have an anchor in a way that people who have no kids yeah. don't. 
Yeah. Okay. She has no anchor. She, she, she has no, no roots. Um, and well, then, and, and of course, she goes on to complain about how difficult it is to date when you're 16. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, you know, that's not really a great age to try to be dating. So anyway, it's just one more. It's one example of that where I think you can see feminism has backfired on women, especially the women who are at the vanguard of it. Right. Right. And that's that that's the you know, and, and uh, he, you know, this this idea of the barbarians that that the Gilder keeps that I keep bringing up because uh, Gilder Gilder talks a lot about it. Is is really that in that story you just told? That's just a sad story. Uh, but that's that's not and, and and the same is true. He there's a chapter in here about homosexuality. The same is true of, of lesbianism. You know, uh, single women and and lesbians are not going to bring about much uh, much ill. You know, m- much m- many major problems in society. It's it's sad. It's sad um, for those individuals, but. The wreckage that that happens on a society is really what happens. Uh, what is really driven by single men or homosexual men or men in the ghetto. Um, and so this 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 whole section, uh, this part two, the breakdown of monogamy. The five the the five chapters are the princess problem, which is about you know the the plight of kind of the single uh, woman who is pursuing her career. We just talked about. The Barbarian's Revenge, which I think is really important, and it's talking about the idolization in our culture of singleness, of single men. All of our heroes are guys like James Bond who are who are out there, you yes. know, being super cool, doing daring stuff, having lots of, you know, sex with lots of different women. Um, so that's become the, and this is the crazy thing. Look at this statistic. This is on page, page 83 of my copy. Um, singles may be peripheral in a sense, but their experience is central to the enigmas of modern life, and their numbers have been growing. Between 1970 and 1982, the ranks of single people jumped 78% hmm. to 19.4 million. I have no idea what that number is today, but uh, but 78% growth in singleness, uh, single people as a percentage of society. And then if you come down, you know, the interesting thing, he talks about in that chapter the barbarian's revenge uh he's got a whole section about the striking result of bachelor pattern is lower income so he actually points out that the income disparities we see in society are not are not gender disparities or racial disparities it's marriage disparities single men currently have median incomes less than 10 percent higher than those of single women who are allegedly to be hobbled by discrimination, even though single men work longer hours and generally tend to use their earning capacities more. Yet there are 30%, they are 30% more likely to be, be unemployed. Married men, however, earn some 70% more than singles of either sex. So married men are, are driving economic growth. You know, single men don't have, because they're not married, don't have the drive to earn. Um, which is fascinating. Um, the next two cha- chapters in this part two, and I'd love to d- jump into all of these. Uh, chapter seven is called Cruising, and it's about homosexuality. Super fascinating. Basic point there is that uh, he makes is that, that um, there's almost no more clear correlation in all of anthro- the anthropological sciences as the correlation between a society that per, that uh, permits poly, polygamy, uh, so so men with multiple wives or mistresses, 
and uh, conspicuous homosexuality. So uh, societies that allow men to, to be uh, to have multiple wives and multiple mistresses, you end up with this intense sexual competition that in, in large part ends up driving homosexuality. Well, can I say something about that? Yeah, jump in. This is interesting. Um, What has happened, and there are a lot of dynamics at play in this. One is the globalization of the dating marketplace, so to speak, you know, like dating apps, that kind of thing. Allow, you know, it used to be that, you know, say you grew up in a small town, you kind of saw, okay, these are the people, you know, I'm going to pick one of these people here to marry that grew up with me or something. You know, you kind of had a small pool to pull from. Uh, when it came to marriage. And because of that, there was a lot of, um, there, there were a lot of times where, um, you know, say somebody from a wealthier family might marry somebody from a lower income family or sure. super intelligent, less intelligent, something like that. Now, sort of mating, you know, now Ivy Leaguers marry Ivy Leaguers and that kind of thing. And that's one of the things that's led to the to the widening wealth gap in our society. But also the, uh, the, the, the globalization of the dating marketplace has produced a situation. And again, all the, all the data is out there. I'm not going to make up statistics or try to try to cite what they are because I can't remember exactly the, de- you know, all the all the details of it. But basically, um, well, here's the thing. Women tend to find a very small percentage of men attractive. And so um, they're just not interested in most men. And with the sexual revolution, um, they will sometimes get sexual interest from men who would have no interest in marrying them. Right. But because a man showed sexual interest in her, totally, you know, totally apart from marriage, she thinks, oh, that's the level of guy. That's the quality of guy that I could get. And so then she's dissatisfied with anybody that doesn't seem to measure up to that. And so it's created this situation where a lot of women are just, they're, they're, you know, and and women kind of reinforce this message amongst themselves, you know, don't settle, you know, that kind of thing. And so the, the standards, the expectations can be incredibly high. And it's not that women shouldn't have high expectations. I certainly think they do. I mean, I've got very high expectations for my daughters, Mary, and I think they've had high expectations for themselves. But you can also cross over a line into uh, what is unrealistic. Um, There's actually something that's like a, um, you know, it's it's like a delusional, a dating delusional calculator. And basically you can plug in this, like, I want want, I've got to have a man who's six feet tall and makes this amount of money and is in this age range. And I'll tell you what percentage of the population falls into that category. And, you know, for what most women would say they want, it's it's a very small percentage. So what that has done, that, that, that has greatly increased the competition among women for a very small number of men. I, I would not be surprised. I mean, I don't want to make any predictions here because I'm not, I'm not the prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm a cessationist <laughs> for crying out loud. But um, I, I think, you know, you, you have seen the dominoes start to fall with same-sex marriage becoming, you know, mirage, becoming uh, yeah. the, you know, legally accepted. I, I, I've got to think that polygamy is not too far behind. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is once you've done away with the male-female requirement for marriage, why, if it doesn't have to be a man and a woman, why does it have to be only two people? There's no, there's no logical reason for that. If love is love, then why isn't love, love, and love? You know, why can't sure. you have multiple uh, loves, uh, love interests that all come together in whatever you think marriage is now? But also, historically, across civilizations, throughout the, whole, the history of the human race, um, women have generally preferred to share a high value man rather than be married to a low value man. 
Okay, that's just that's just a reality. Um, a woman would rather be a second wife or a third wife to a really high status man than the sole wife of a lower status man. Okay, now throughout in history, of course, it's the Christian faith that, that challenged that and changed that, and, and largely by outlawing polygamy, it, it, it kind of forced the issue. Uh, but I think today, with marriage being treated as something that's total, totally fluid, I think that it's very possible that polygamy will come back, and for just that reason. See, think about this. People think, oh, polygamy, that's so cruel to women, they'd have to share a man. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it, that is bad. Okay. But who polygamy really hurts are the lower-value men who now are not going to get any spouse at all. Right. Okay. They're the ones who are hurt the, 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 you know, so now we have the incels and, and the revenge of the incels. And it's, and, 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 you know, a lot of the men who fall into that category, uh, are not marriageable. They're just not, right. but you've got, well, you've got sexuality too, effeminate. Or homosexuality is the other place they go. That's what I was going to say. Yes. That, that's the other place they end up is they, is they become homosexual. So they either become these incels who, you know, basically, uh, blame women and they become incredibly angry. And in some cases violent, that becomes a huge problem or they become homosexuals. And of course, then homosexuality has got all kinds of other problems that it creates for the men themselves and for society as a whole. But that, that's a dynamic that we need to understand as far as, as what's happening in the world around us. Um, so don't be surprised if there is this push for polygamy at some point and understand who that's gonna hurt most. And I think what we really need to do is be helping men become more marriageable. So, so, right. so, you know, so you're not so quote unquote low value. Uh, so that you actually become more attractive to a woman. Although, again, that's very difficult to do in the globalized marketplace. And especially if you have a lot of young women and because of the number of Instagram likes they get or because yeah. of the guys they slept with when they were in high school and college, have it in their minds, they have it in their heads that, oh, I can get this really high value guy. And yep. maybe not, you know, you may, not, not every woman can be married to the CEO. It just doesn't, yep. it just doesn't work that way. Uh, not every woman can be married to the guy who's the star quarterback of the, you know, whatever football team. So uh, it, it just, it, there, there, there's a very unhealthy dynamic at work in our culture. And it's important for us, I think, to be aware of that. And it's the kind of thing that Gilder's getting at here. I mean, it's the, it's the kind of social dynamic that he's addressing, I think, even though it looks a little bit different now than it did when he was writing this book, the, the same dynamic is at work. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, on the, the homosexual, the, the chapter cruising uh, on homosexuality, I thought was just super fascinating, and um, and I think that it's um, it, it's uh, it's it's it really undoes a lot of the myths about homosexuality. Um, but he he uh, he says um, this is a in that chapter he says the most crucial cause of rise in homosexuality in America in recent decades is sexual liberation. The emancipation of men from monogamy, from, from monogamy. Once again, when men leave their aging wives to marry young women or maintain young mistresses, they create, in effect, a system of polygyny. The annals of anthropology offer few examples of a correlation so complete as that between human societies that tolerate polygyny and societies with conspicuous practice of homosexuality. Yeah. And and the and the best example is Muslims. You know, is is he talks about in the Arab world. Where you have sheiks with harems, and uh, and you allow men to have up to four wives legally and concubines as well, those worlds have massive homosexual, massive, massively um, uh, huge uh, homosexuality uh, problems. 
Well, because think about it. For every man that takes a second wife, there's one man out there who's going to have no right. wife at all. That's okay. right. I don't, I don't know where Jordan Peterson gets this statistic, but he says something like 80% of women who have ever lived have reproduced. Only about 40% of men who have ever lived yeah. have reproduced. I mean, that, that yeah. kind of sounds... That's, Across right. the history of the world, and what, you know, I, again, I can't vouch for his numbers exactly, but right. uh, some, something roughly like that is true uh, across the history of the world, and it tells you the problem. And, and again, right. the Christian faith—it was the church discipling the nations and, and teaching nations, in, you know, what became Western civilization about marriage and about monogamy—that yeah. basically ended that. And 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 yeah. one man, one woman, and you had people of all different social classes getting married. But now yeah. we're starting to see the breakdown of that, and that's why I think we're headed back to. And with polygamy comes a kind of tribalism. I mean, all kinds of other things come in with it, and it's you know, it's 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 very. Uh, very messy, very destructive. Yeah, he's he says he quotes a survey, a large survey. This is a, this is in the Barbarians' Revenge chapter, but a large survey of college students indicated that while virginity among girls was rapidly diminishing, virginity among boys was actually increasing and right. at an equal rate. So, right. so yeah. to, to to your point, men are men are um, are uh, having less sex with 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 women. Um, and and probably increasing rates of homosexuality and or pornography mm-hmm. use. Um, he says in uh, in cruising, he says for all complexities, all the com- complexities of a particular case, a homosexual c- culture, whether in prisons or at seas or in a polygamous societies, originates with a lack of available young women. Yeah. So so it's it's a lack of available young women that drives drives people to homosexuality and and, and right. right. And right. it's, so, you know, yeah. there are a lot of women today. I mean, I, I mentioned polygamy. I mean, there's a lot of women today who, who would rather remain single than marry, you know, a, what they would consider a low value man. So, yeah. So, I mean, and, and sometimes, of course, they'll have children out of wedlock or whatnot. But, yeah, I mean, that that Gilder's exactly right about that. The numbers continue to show that that um, there are a lot more women having sex with a lot and have a lot of sex partners and then you've got this small number of men who are sleeping with the women and a lot of men who are just kind of left out and obviously all of this is the fruit of the sexual revolution all of this is the fruit of our rebellion against god's design for sexuality and i think something has to be captured and gilder gets at this but because he's not fully grounded in scripture he's obviously not writing you know a specifically christian book he doesn't really capture the full dynamic of it but it is so so important for us as christian parents you know, as, as Christian moms and dads, as Christian pastors and elders, yep. the, the one thing that we teach again and again and again is the beauty of God's sexual design, that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is not just a matter of rules. Yeah. It, it is a matter of our design. One example of this, and, and we, we kind of, we, um, we've moved further in the book, so this is backtracking a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's all right. But, um, he uh, he actually says. I want to let me see which chapter it comes at the. It's at the end of one of the chapters. Um, he basically talks about the male sex drive as the strongest drive in a man's life and what the implications of that are. Yeah. Um, I think it's. Let me see. Yeah. So it comes. Um, at the end, well, it's actually at the end of the chapter, Taming the Barbarians. He says, in a yep. world where women do not say no, so a yep. quote-unquote sexually liberated world, the man is yep. never forced to settle down and make serious choices. So because a man doesn't have to grow up and take on the responsibilities of a family yep. to, in order to get sex, he, do, he doesn't grow up. You know, yep. so... Um, yep. 
But then Gilder goes on, his sex drive, the most powerful compulsion in his life, is never used to make him part of yes. civilization as a supporter of a family, as the supporter of a family. If a woman does not force him to make a long-term commitment to marry, in general, he doesn't. Here, I mean, basically, and sadly, he's right. I mean, men will sink to the level uh, that women allow them to go in order to get sex. I mean, that, that is for fallen men, that is the case. So you could say, and this, this is Gilder's logic, this is why it's dependent on women to say no to sex and therefore raise yep. the bar. But just go back to the pre-sexual revolution world. What was it like if a man wanted sex? Okay, sex is the strongest drive in his life. What is he going to do? If a man wants sex, he's got to uh, get a job. You know, so he's got to educate himself, get a job, and prove he can be a provider. Uh, he's got to probably dress decently and save some money. And he's got to learn some manners. Because most likely, in order to get to her, he's going to have to go through her dad. Right. So he's going to have to be a presentable man in all kinds of ways. And men would do that because men are driven by a desire for, for union with a woman. They would jump through all these hoops uh, yeah. because they, they, want to, they want the love of a woman in, in their life. And uh, when you take away all of, the, you know, all of that and then men can get sex without all of that, that's what they do. And so that's yeah. why we have all of these men who just simply refuse to grow up. That's right. Well, it's and 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 I think the the big takeaway, uh, one of the big takeaways on the the idea of the sexual, of sexual liberation is that the narrative that that's out there is that, you know, once sex becomes free, then everybody gets access to as much sex as they want, and it and it becomes this sort of utopia, and uh, and it's and it's just it's the statistics prove this out over and over and over. Gilder does a great job of showing this that. Actually, the opposite is what happens. And this is his summary of the end of that book on, or the chapter on homosexuality. He says, what happens when sex is liberated is not equality, but a vast intensification of sexual competition, competition from which there is no sure haven except impotence and defeat, competition in which marriage is just another arena, or the home base from which the strong deploy competition in which the only sure result is an ever larger band of vindictive losers of fatherless children and childless fathers in a world without family dis disciplines many of them can be found in the ghetto so he kind of moves on from from that to talk about the ghetto and how the ghetto you know and it's not racial it's 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 sexual it's 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 about marriage um, but the ghetto is a picture of of exactly what happens uh, to a to a society, uh, a sexually liberated society, um, and in a society that is propping up um, is propping up um, that that narrative of of uh, egalitarianism and, and sexual liberation with with uh, with the welfare state. Yeah, chapters eight and nine really go together. And yeah, yeah it, it's, it's really important to understand. And here there was a twist. It was not just sexual liberation, okay, right. in the ghetto, so to speak. Uh, that was part of it, is uh, separating sex from marriage and procreation. But, but the other sort of the curveball here that got added to the dynamic in the ghetto is the welfare state beginning in the 1960s coming in and basically telling young women in, in, in the inner city uh, if you have a child out of wedlock, we will subsidize that child and we will give you more money than, <laughs> than what a man your age could earn. But right. if you marry him, it all goes away. Right. So, what, so if you subsidize fatherlessness, what are you going to get? More fatherlessness. 
And that's what happened. And, and, and within a decade even, uh, the, and you know, you, it's not racial, it's true, but in many cases these were black families. And I do think there was probably some racial motivation in the desire to destroy the black family. Sure, yeah. Um, because think about this. Coming out of the Civil War and Reconstruction, the black family was actually intact. The, yeah. the, there were very few fatherless um, black children, just like there were very few fatherless white children growing up in America between, say, 18, you know, the eight, say 1870 and the 1950s. Okay? And in fact, in the first half of the 20th century, black families, so think about this in terms of the family, the household, because you have to, not just individuals, but the family. Black families were growing in average household wealth faster than average white families. So, so, so whatever kind of racial economic gap you had there, blacks were gaining ground. And th this is still during, you know, this is still, this is pre-civil rights. It's still Jim Crow, you know, so, yeah. so blacks are making a great deal of progress, even though there are all these injustices that they have to overcome. They're still making yeah. progress and the family's intact. The welfare state then comes in, in the 1960s and the welfare state does what <laughs> Reconstruction did not. Uh, and, and what Jim Crow laws did not do, and that is it utterly destroys and decimates the black family. Yeah. And, and obviously we're still seeing the wreckage of that. Now, uh, white families have been hurt too, and, and, and that's on a massive scale as well, but especially the black family has been completely destroyed uh, by the welfare state. And that's really what he goes into in these two chapters, the disintegration of the urban family. And I'm not saying there weren't other factors involved. I mean, we could talk about, say, yeah. globalization that took jobs away from those inner cities. There, there's a lot of other factors you could point to. But I think the single largest factor of them all is the welfare state coming in and basically subverting the man in his provider and protector role. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, it's just a fascinating... Um, it's just a fascinating dive into it. There were a lot of dynamics here that I, I wasn't even, you know, fully aware of. Like he, he talked about, um, he talked about liberation day, you know, about yeah, how, yeah. um, how women in the ghetto celebrate liberation day, which is, which is basically on your 16th birthday, the government I'm reading, uh, I'm reading, uh, on my page 128 on your 16th birthday, government will offer you a chance for independence in an apartment of your own. Free housing, medicine, legal assistance, and a combination of welfare payments and food stamps worth several hundred dollars a month. It may not seem like much to a sociologist, but it's a package hugely beyond the pittance allowed, allowed you by your mother and far beyond the earnings capacity of any of your male acquaintances. It is offered on one crucial condition. You must bear an illegitimate child. After three children, the payments in New York State will rise to $8,333 an amount 40%, 45% higher than, than the after-tax earnings of a full-time job at minimum wage. So, he, you know, he paints this picture of this just chaotic, you know, life in the tenements, you know, and you're in an apartment and, uh, you, you, you know, you're, you're living with your mom and her kids who all have different fathers and uh, you've got some man in there who's not actually your father and... Um, You've got teenage boys who are who are part of gangs and are violent and have guns and knives in the house, and there's a lot of tension. And you're a troubled teenage girl. You have the option to gain your independence and go get your own apartment and get your own income. All you have to do is have an illegitimate child. Um, but then think about what it means for the 16-year-old black boy 
who yeah. now realizes that, well, I'm never going to be able to provide as well as the state provides, or it would be many years until I could. Uh, and so why should I make something of myself? Why, you know, I can't really aspire to family life anymore because by the time I get to the point where I could provide at that level, all of the women are going to have multiple illegitimate children. And, you know, who, want, you know, who, who wants to try to, it's just, it just, it, the welfare state uh, is a great, great evil. And one of the best aspects of Gilder's book is exposing that evil. And you really yeah. see it in these two chapters. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and, and the other interesting thing about it, you know, he, he talks in the chapter about, um, about the revenge of barbarians. He's kind of talking about how we have glorified single men um, in our culture, in our movies, the the James Bond kind of character. Yeah, attachment. Um, yeah. But then, but then, out of black culture, out of the ghettos, um, has you know, that's driven um, the you know um, you know gangster rap and that and that that kind of uh, culture. Uh, you've got you've got all this culture that has also uh, come out of this this world, this uh, broken families. Um, and, and that's become the other, another driving cultural, um, phenomenon, you know, is, is, is that, 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 that music, that, that culture, that the plight of the, of the black man in the ghetto has also become a huge part of our national identity that's kind of idolized. Um, and, and so, so that's another, that's another, uh, another way that, that, uh, the culture has kind of. Um, you know, ha has been shaped and continues to kind of perpetuate uh, itself. Uh, well, yeah, and, and let's talk about that a little bit more because I think yeah. that that's a huge thing. And, and um, th this whole view of uh, the American male as unattached, as uh, rootless, self-made, yep. uh, self-sufficient, not going to be tied down to a particular woman and place, um, I, I've actually referred to this as freebird masculinity because of the, okay. the Leonard Skinner song kind of celebrates like this particular version of masculinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that. You know, you're as free as a bird. And so, you know, he's got this woman that he's been with and that he's now leaving. He's going to, he's just, or rambling man by the Allman Brothers. You know, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, rock music and country music that, that you quote unquote celebrates this kind of right. uh, detached, uh, masculinity that does, you know, that, that's just disconnected from any responsibilities. Some of this goes back to the old Westerns, okay, uh, which may I like a lot of the old Westerns, but a lot of times this ideal of kind of the, the cowboy, you know, the rugged, independent man who goes off, you know, you, 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 if you stay around in the city, that's a feminized culture. Women are going to domesticate you and tame you, just like Gilder says. And so we're going to yeah. break free from that. We're going to go out to the frontier. We're going to go out west. And there we will, uh, there we will be able to express our real rugged masculinity. Okay, yeah. but 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 in fleeing from civilization in that way, and fleeing from family, whatever kind of problems there might be with that culture, and I wouldn't argue with whether or not it was feminized. I think it largely was. There's something very effeminate about fleeing the responsibilities that come with it. There's something very effeminate about fleeing those uh, yeah. those responsibilities that, that that tie you down to a particular woman and family and children and place and job and all of that. So, uh, but but that's been celebrated again and again. I mean, one of my favorite old westerns, and I love the book too, is Shane, and it's about this guy Shane, 
Uh, you know, but but he comes from out of nowhere, and he's you know it's not the boy you know so the boy really you can tell looks up to him, and uh, and and not so much his own dad, and and he kind of protects the the family you know ranch, and then he's gone, you know he's mm-hmm. on to the next thing, and so it's, it's I mean it's, he's a free bird, you know he doesn't yeah. lock himself down in any one place, he's kind of the hero here, and then he's going to move on to the next place. And, and, and so that's who the boy looks up to instead of his dad. And so you think, okay, well, so is he going to be this way instead of his, like the family man that his dad has been? And, uh, you know, so, so there's just, that's kind of built into a lot of American culture. That's one way it's built in. You talked about, you know, say like, I mean, obviously now with um, rap music, hip hop, all of that, another kind of rootless masculinity is celebrated. Okay. But it, but it's the same kind of thing. All of it is detaching men from the responsibilities of civilization and family to protect and provide for a particular people in a particular place. And that's a huge problem. I I think there is something very effeminate about that escape from responsibility. Totally. Totally. And and what he's saying, I kind of found this section I wanted to, to quote from at the end of the ghetto liberation. It's like the last page, but he says the drama of the unsocialized black has become the commanding motif of American culture, driven to the wall, threatened with emasculation, surrounded everywhere by formidable women. The black male is summoned from his own body and spirit, the masculine testament on which much of American manhood now subsists. And then he goes on to talk about how rock culture and, you know, rock and roll and, and jazz and gospel and dance, all these, all these things. It's, it's this, um, it's 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 music of the embattled emasculated black man you know he's he's under siege and he's asserting his masculinity through through this bravado and 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 and, and so i i think the same thing is happening in the movies you're talking about it's it's you have men who have been who have who are under attack masculinity is under attack systemically across the board mm-hmm. in our society through sexual liberation and the welfare state and so on. And, and uh, the response uh, is this kind of m- masculine um, fantasy, you know, uh, yeah. that you're ta- you're describing. It's, 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 it's this gl- over emphasis and glorification on how tough you are and how much violence you are capable of and on how many women you can sleep with or how, how many much, women you can sleep I mean, with. Andrew Tate would be the example of this now. I mean, I haven't, I don't really yep. know much about Andrew Tate, but obviously he's an example of this now. You used the totally. example of James Bond earlier. I mean, that's a similar kind of thing. Uh, you know, uh, so th- there's all different kinds of ways in which men can detach themselves from family and responsibility, you know, the responsibilities yep. that come with family life and civilization, all different kinds of ways it can happen. So it's not like there's yep. just this one particular paradigm, but that's what you see. And, and I think that's a huge, huge problem uh, is, is this, you know, uh, modern man fleeing from his responsibilities. Now, yep. part of why he flees from those responsibilities is that those responsibilities have been detached from any kind of authority. Okay. So, I mean, yep. you, you can talk about all different kinds of dynamics in play here, or he flees the responsibility because the state's taken it over and is going to do it, you know, in a sense better than he can, because they'll write the young girl a check bigger than he could go earn, you know, if, right. he, if he did try to take responsibility. So, but, but, but the, the, there's a huge, huge need for men today to be willing to go against the grain, to go against the grain of all of this and say, no, uh, masculine, you know, men build civilization. So of course, civilization is masculine. We don't need to flee from it. We need to find what it looks like to fulfill our responsibilities within 
the, you know, the place where God has put us within this, you know, within this civilization, we need to find a godly way to do that, what that looks like in this time and this place. Yeah. 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 It's a, you know, the, the, the welfare, you know, the, the, the welfare thing I think is, is so much more, um, it's just so much more, uh, profound, I think, than, uh, than we realize, you know, and, and, and I think, um, um, you know, this idea of these men who, oh, I mean, one of the concepts in there that was, that was fascinating was, you know, um, he says, any, in any event, the welfare payment from the point of view of the poor is anything but negligibly small. It's the chief single source of funds in the community. It's free and can be augmented by unreported part-time or criminal income, more difficult to come by if one is working full-time. So, you know, so, so in addition to you know, um, subsidizing, uh, fatherlessness. It's, it's also subsidizing crime because you threaten to, uh, you threaten to lose your, your, uh, welfare payments, um, uh, if you have a job, but also, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to be, a um, you know, if you want to be a free ranging kind of independent man, um, you know, having a job, uh, or, or it kind of, kind of hampers that. Um, and, and then there's, you know, there's, there's the fact that like men, you know, the, the, the dynamic of, of this kind of like couch surfing essential, this game of musical beds he talks about that, that these men are, you know, dependent on women, you know, and they're kind of bouncing from, you know, sometimes in the same night they get kicked out of, of one woman's house and they're, and they're out looking for another woman who they can stay with. Um, just this, just topsy turvy, crazy world that's been turned on its head uh, with these with these men um, in the ghetto is uh, is is pretty um, it's pretty dire. Um, well, here, here's another thing that wasn't clear in in Gilder's day, but has become clear. Think about what this does to things like voting patterns, for example. Okay, I mean, yeah. you, you could say was the welfare state an attempt to buy the black vote? Okay, but but you could ask it even more specifically: was it an attempt to buy the female vote? Okay, yeah. because here's the thing: you'll have a lot of women today, say single moms, white or yeah. black, doesn't matter, Hispanic, whatever. Uh, they will talk about how they are strong, independent women, and they've got their you know couple children they've had out of wedlock or whatever, and and they will uh, say, I don't need a man. Well, okay, maybe not, but what they do need is the federal government to take care of them, okay? Yeah. And then we could say, well, actually, uh, you know, men actually pay far more in taxes than women, <laughs> okay? So it's actually yeah. this massive transfer through the welfare state from men to women, okay? Yeah. But, but, but forget all that. You know, I, I have said before, I don't have a problem with women voting. I just wish they were better at it uh, because here's the thing. Women vote predominantly today, especially, it hasn't always been this way, but women predominantly vote for left-wing progressive candidates and policies. Why is that? Well, it's primarily because women are now looking to the state to play the role that the husband and father used to play, mm -hmm. to be that protector and that provider. Okay, so we've got, yeah. You know, so, so think about this: we've got welfare laws that undermine the man who wants to be a provider. He's being undercut and subverted by the welfare state. The man who wants to be a protector, he's being subverted and undercut by, say, gun control laws and, and anti-self-defense laws and that kind of thing. So it gets harder to be the protector and provider. 
Okay, so meanwhile, what does the woman do? Well, she starts to look to the state for those things and she starts to vote for those kinds of policies. And, and actually, it, it's the, the most radicalized voting block that we have in terms of the you know, various demographics in America is single women. Mm-hmm. Okay, white or black, single women uh, vote far more for left-wing progressive candidates and policies than any other category, any other demographic goes in one direction. So it's the most radicalized group. And, and there's a reason for that. There's a, there's a logic to it. And this is it. It has, to, and you can ask which is the chicken, which is the egg. But in a way, it doesn't matter. Uh, they, they are voting for a state, a paternalistic state, a husband state that will take care of them. And especially, this goes back to the Candace Bushnell article I was reading from, where you know she's old and alone and without an anchor, it doesn't have children. When these women get older, who's going to take care of them? These, these childless right. women, when they get older, who's the, you know, the women who have rejected marriage and rejected children, who's going to take care of them? Well, it's going to be the state. And they're going to be a very powerful political entity grow, voting for a larger and larger and more expansive yeah. welfare state to take care of them as, as they age. And again, I, I, you know, I think that's a disaster for the economy. I think it's the, it's the worst possible thing because it kills productivity, it kills economic growth, it kills entrepreneurship. Uh, yeah. you know, the, the bigger the government gets, the less there is uh, for economic development, really, because the, state, the state's a parasite on the economy right. in, that, in that sense. So, so it's, it, long term, it's, it's disastrous unless we can reverse these trends. The, the, well, the example again, the most- that, that cha- well, it's not at the end of the chapter, but in supporting families where he talks about um, daycare and basically how families with stay-at-home moms end up subsidizing childcare for families with working moms. You That's know, right. again, basically through the mechanism of the welfare state and so forth. Right. Right. Yeah, and 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 you know, in the end, uh, again, the data bears this out very clearly that the most productive uh, contributors to the economy are married men. You know, married men. Uh, and it's not even close. I mean, it's not even right, right. sort of close. You know, it's it's the, that's the biggest disparity in income is the difference between married men and, and all others, whether it's single men, whether it's race, whether it's gender. It's 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 really marriage. Uh, and um, yeah, the, um, the I thought you know I want to mention this this section from uh, the barbarians revenge uh because i just found this to be uh so so good um that you know we we you hear this kind of through different lenses that you know crime you know crime and and uh poverty and all these all these social ills you know you you see them attributed to different things but but gilder i think does a really good job of showing that that um that crime, poverty, et cetera, correlate better to sex and singleness than it does with race. And he shows this whole situation where, you know, um, you know, single men are convicted of the ultimate sexual violation rape five times more often purportedly than married men. So it's, it's not men in general, it's, it's single men. Right. Um, right. The r- reported incidence of this crime rose 28.6% between 70, 1974 and 1983, more than any other offense. Um, and then he talks about the suicide rate, you know, from 1960 to 1977, the suicide rate for young men between 15 and 19 rose 154 percent. And we know that, you know, I'd love to see them update the numbers in this book because I've I know I've I've watched those numbers skyrocket uh, yeah. fairly recently. But there's a really wonderful as he kind of paints this picture of how really how perilous it is 
in this world, in the world to be a single man. You know, you're, you're actually, you're, I love this line, failure, um, let me read this thing about, about suicide. Altogether, the pattern of mortality among single men is so various and inexorable that it suggests an or organic source, a failure of the will to live, a disconnection from the life force itself as it arises in society. So men, men are suicidal and are accident prone and are um, violent and are uh, uh, live risky lives, whether yeah. that's sexual or otherwise, because they are disconnected yeah. from the life force of society itself, yeah. um, which I thought was, was really powerful. And then when he says, he says on the next page, I loved this, um, and, well, I'll, I'll just read this one line and then I'll read this quote. They die of all causes, but, but like single men, divorce men specialize in accidents and suicides. So he talks about how divorce men also have a massive uh, increase of mortality rates, two or three times yeah. as high as divorced women. Yeah. Um, and then he says, in short, when a man accepting an honor at the company banquet or preface of a book gives much of the credit to his wife, he's not merely following a ritual. <laughs> he is stating a practical fact. In all likelihood, he would not have succeeded and possibly not even survived if he had not if he had been single or divorced. Um, I thought that was great. Uh, you know, this it's it's kind of a almost cliche. You know that a, that a man is going to thank his woman, his wife, uh, for his accomplishments. But but statistically, uh, you know, that that is the source of his marriage. You know, his marriage, his wife really is the source behind his success in, in life. I saw a headline this morning, Tim McGraw, the country singer, he said he would have died if he did not marry Faith Hill. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot of men who are that way. There, there's a quote, I think it's, um, it's from one of the uh, ancient pagan philosophers, maybe it was Seneca, I don't remember who, but basically said the same thing. You know, it, it is, it, it, you know, uh, it is because of my wife that I am alive, basically. The, and men do have this, you know, this need for women. Um, there is, um, you know, there, there are accounts of like when, obviously most people got, you know, marriage rates have been very high for most of human history. Um, yep. you know, and, well, at least we can say in, in Western civilization, marriage rates have been very high once polygamy was outlawed. But, um, you know, there, I've seen accounts where like you could tell like a single man in, um, uh, in Paris, uh, because he, you know, because of how his clothes were and, you know, he's like, you know, unnaturally skinny and this kind of thing, because he doesn't have a woman who is caring for him and his household, you know? And, and so, uh, yes, men, men are very, very dependent on women for sure. Uh, we do our best when we are connected to women, when we're, uh, in a covenant, uh, relationship with a woman and, that's we do our worst when we're not. For the vast, vast, vast majority of men, they absolutely need to be attached. And so when yeah. you have a society where so many men are not, it causes you really big problems. Now, I think it causes really big problems for the women, too. And again, I think totally. that's what Gilder overlooked. I would love to see somebody come along today and write a book called Women in Marriage. And basically yeah. show women need marriage too, and women need men because yeah. they do. And I think when yeah. when they don't, you know, again, it's like who drives the transgender craze? It's it's mostly women who drive this, yeah. who, who are imposing this yeah. on little kids in schools and all this. Uh, so uh, you know, when women are cut loose from masculinity and they don't have that masculine influence and masculine grounding in their life, either by a strong father figure when they're growing up, or by a by a competent husband. 
you know, later on in life. Uh, yeah, it's really unhealthy for women too. But absolutely, yeah. there's no question. I, I thought that headline was really funny when I saw it this morning. In fact, I thought of our podcast when I saw that, that uh, Tim McGraw headline this morning. I was like, that's great. That's it. <laughs> yes, his career would have been in the trash and he probably would have ended up in a, in, you know, dead in a ditch somewhere without his right. wife. I was going to say, you know, I, I think I think it's I really appreciated that he did this. You know, his his chapter on supporting families is really, really excellent. And this is where he goes into how welfare is going to always encourage permanent dependency, which is dehumanizing, steals away your dignity and fatherlessness. It always ends up yeah. subsidizing fatherlessness. And that's why the welfare state is so, uh, so terrible. Well, one of the reasons yeah. why. Um, but at the end, at the end of that chapter, the last paragraph, this is what he says. And I think it's really good. He says, most crucial of all is the role of the churches. Several sociological studies have shown that churchgoers have sharply lower levels of illegitimacy and divorce than others in the population. The problems yeah. of the American poor are most fundamentally moral and spiritual. That is so important to see. The yeah. fundamental problem with poor people in America is yeah. not an economic problem, but it's a moral problem and it's a spirit. It's, it, it, it's a spiritual poverty, not in the Matthew 5 sense. It, it's a spiritual poverty of simply not having been uh, trained, equipped, discipled, in the faith, it taught you know taught truths from the Word of God that has left people in you know their lives in shambles. Yeah. Gilder Gazzani says, as Margaret Mead insisted, stable families with long time horizons and a resistance to the buffeting of life's inevitable troubles. See, that's what family does for you. It makes you future oriented, yeah. gives you this long term view. Uh, you know, you're able to think about not just yourself but others, and not just the present but the future. So, family life has this very salutary effect on us. Yeah. And it also helps us when we go through hard times because you've got a network of people uh, who can be there to, to help you through hard times. So yeah. she says, stable families ultimately depend in all societies on the reinforcement of religious beliefs and ceremonies. Yeah. Without a strong religious culture, a secular bureaucracy with its rationalizing ethic erodes the very foundations of family life and thus creates the very moral chaos it ostensibly combats. The effort to inculcate ethical behavior without religious faith seems one of the great fiascos of the modern age. If the established churches are, and I don't think by here he means established like in a church state sense, like uh, like say yeah yeah yeah, like the Church of England or something. I just think he means you know um, well 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 established yeah. churches in the sense of well functioning right. churches are truly concerned with the problems of poverty, they will abandon their current tendency to serve as shills for the demoralizing materialism of the welfare state and return to their paramount role, giving moral and spiritual guidance to the poor and to all American society. Okay, so a couple things here stand out to me about this, and I'll let you wrap it up, Larson. One is, yes, there are a lot of churches that have gotten on board with the welfare state in the name of social justice thinking this is the Christian thing to do. Wouldn't Jesus want us to help the poor? Not realizing that actually the welfare state hurts the poor. That's what we have to get through our heads. The yeah. welfare state, in the name of helping the poor, the welfare state hurts the poor. Okay, there's a book with the title, When Helping Hurts, that yeah. is actually, and it's not really even so much about the welfare state specifically, it's about all kinds of ways that we can inadvertently seek to help the poor and actually end up hurting them. Well, the state is the biggest offender in this way. So, so there's that aspect. He's exactly right. The state needs to be equipping people for, uh, in, in such a way that they're not going to be dependent on the welfare state. So that, that's really, really important. And to, to the extent that the state has 
that the, the church has encouraged the welfare state, I think the church has been unfaithful to her own calling. If anything, the church should step in and say, we'll take care of the poor. We don't need the state to do that. We'll take care of the poor. And in the process of doing that, we'll train the poor how to get off the dole. And, yeah. and, and, and you know, we can make a distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor. Uh, we can make a distinction between those who can help themselves and those who can't. Those are important distinctions when it comes yeah. to uh, doing uh, poverty relief and mercy ministry. But the other thing here, and this is why I identify myself as an ecclesiocentrist and not a familiarist. You know, if you ask what is the most basic and central institution in society, it's, irredu it's irreducible in the sense that you have to have families, you have to have churches, you have to have the state. You can't do without any of them. Yeah. But I believe the church is central. In God's social economy, the church is central. And I've got blog posts on this that people can go look up if they're interested. But Gilder here reinforces it. He says the family in a very deep way depends upon the church for its stability, for its formation, for its uh, for its ongoing strengthening, the family depends upon the church. The church depends on, fam on the family in various ways too, sure. but not to the same degree, not, 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 not in the same kind of way. The family really depends on the church. And that means, you know, so you're an elder, I'm a pastor. That means it falls to us to really be discipling men, discipling women, disciple, kind of coming along parents to disciple children, doing these things to train people how to be, you know, faithful Christians, faithful family members, faithful church members, faithful citizens, it falls to the church. No other institution can do that. No other institution has been entrusted with teaching the word of God. No other institution uh, has been given the, the, the spiritual power that the church has to make this happen. It's incredibly important. Yep. That's a good word. It's a good word. And it's, you know, just to add, add to that, that final point, you know, uh, you know, education is another one of those institutions that that we have that that the government and and but just kind of popular kind of culture believes is essential for the formation of society right. and 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 it's really not. You know, it's and 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 you have to be careful with colleges. You know, they they want your money. They want your kids to come there, and they're gonna. I mean, I think a big picture. This is I think what I was starting to say earlier before I got interrupted was that the big it really all comes down to the story we're telling the stories we're telling you know and and, and i think that's what you're saying about the church is the church is telling the story you know as recapitulating and, and retelling the ultimate story um and and without that we start to tell these false stories and about about how the world works about who god is about who men are who women are what our purpose is in the world and and it degenerates really really quickly um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to look at anthropology, you know, f from Gilder's book, the different anthropological examples throughout the world of different societies who have dealt with these problems in different ways. Um, but outside of the church, outside of the Christian narrative, it's never pretty, you know, it's, it's, you either get what we have today in our society, which we have to, this sexually liberated society that is, that is propped up by a welfare state and and uh, and a lot of propaganda. Um, you get you get this culture, which which by the way, if you watch uh, the movie Birth Gap, uh, which I've only seen the first half of, I haven't even seen the second half, but uh, there's a movie called Birth Gap that talks about this this whole phenomenon that's happening globally right now of societies with uh, totally out of whack. Um, demographics because women have been told have believed this lie 
that they should pursue their career first and then find a husband later and have all found, you know, and now we have societies where you don't have enough kids being born to support the, the elderly. And you have a lot of women unplanned. He, he has a statistic, something like 85% of women want to have children and only, I want to say only 60% or, or 50%, some, some much lower number are, are having children. Um, and, and the, the category of women that 30% or so that are not having, who wanted to have kids and who, who don't have kids are what he's calling unplanned childlessness, unplanned yeah, childlessness. Yeah, yeah, people, um, yeah that, that, that's right. Women having uh, either no children when they hope to have children or fewer children than they would like to have. And a lot of it is because of life decisions made early on, right. you know, the trajectory they get on. And then, and whether that's, you know, making bad decisions when it comes to say college debt or something like that, that would force them to put off having children until it's too late. And it's funny because, I mean, if there's anything that's obvious about female biology, it's the biological clock. Yeah. Women don't stay fertile forever. And yet it's like that, that fat gets ignored. Uh, yep. you know, it's one of the ways that we are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And one of the ways that we are out of touch with our own natures, you know, the way that yep. God made the world. Um, well, you know, there's, there's a kind of dysphoria uh, where I think people are simply not at home in their own bodies and don't understand their own bodies and their bodily design. But one, yeah. one other thing I want to say about that that you said that I think is, is really crucial, women who have put career before family. Okay, yeah. For men, I've used the slogan, mission before marriage. God gave Adam a job and then gave him a wife. And I think that's generally the pattern. Now, I don't think a man has to be, you know, like have gobs of yeah. money in the bank or anything like that before he can get married, but he needs to have a vocation. He needs to know what he's going to do to provide for a family. Okay. So for men, it's mission before marriage, but for women in a very real sense, it's marriage before mission. Okay. And I don't even just mean chronologically, like a woman would be better off getting married early and then going back to school later on in life and getting a job and pursuing a career after she's raised her kids. Although I think that'd be a great way for her to do it. But for her, the marriage takes the priority. I mean, my, you know, um, when, I, when, when, when young men are going to pursue a woman, they're not asking this woman, well, what kind of job are you going to have and how much money can you make with that? I mean, that's, that's not what they're interested in. They want to know, you know, can you raise children? Are you, are you willing to embrace this motherly calling to nurture children and, 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 and care for children and all that? Because for the woman, that's the, that's the priority. Yeah, it's it's for, for men, it's mission before marriage. For women, it's, it's marriage before submission. <laughs> hey, that's, is, that's a great way to put it. I love right? it. Right? Because because <laughs> you're submitting you're, sub, you're you're submitting to your man's mission, you know. So you can't have a mission. You can't have right. a mission right. until exactly you have a right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Although I'll say and again, this is why you and I need to, you know, maybe you know, we can twist Gilder's arm to write the women in marriage book, but if not, maybe you and I just need to try to do some podcasts on on women in marriage because I I do think you know, we. I think it's important that we tell the story and we jump up and down on on the importance of of recognizing the lies that we've been told by the world. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we do have to we do have to encourage women. You know, women are women who have grown up in the society and now find them find themselves in their twenties and thirties and forties, unmarried and and uh, and unhappy. You know, there's the. You know, God is uh, God. God still has a a place for them. Has has a purpose for them loves them. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, they're, they're yeah. not a statistic. Uh, you know, they are, they are, uh, loved by a personal God. And so the church also needs to, and that's another thing the church needs to figure out, you know, how to respond to, uh, in a, in a, in a compassionate way, 
um, these these women who have who are in that that situation of unplanned childlessness and and singleness. Well, hey, Rich, I know we both got to go. Yep. Super fun talking with you. We didn't we didn't good. even uh, good start spontaneous off the cuff kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of this book, and and uh, you know, obviously, these are topics you and I love to talk about. So I'll, I'll plan on reading through section three and underlining and highlighting a bunch of stuff, and we can uh, we can do a part three on on this book if we want um, next time. That sounds great, Larson. Thank you. All right, Rich. Cheers, man. The God a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.